Good morning, again. So typically, oh, hello. So typically we, um, I guess not really intentionally, just kind of by the nature of who we are as a people, we tend to engage first the mind uh, in our worship gatherings. We think about who God is. We sing with songs that are, that are more intellectual, just rich in, in gospel truth. And then we hear a sermon that builds upon that. And then God, at some point, the Spirit of God like intervenes and moves and engages our heart. So it's like this knowledge that drops down into something that moves us to worship. And so uh, that's one of the reasons we, we do the bulk of our songs at the end, that we're responding to the gospel proclamation. Um, but I say all that as a good reminder, but also it seems to me this morning, it might just be me, uh, that our emotions are already engaged. <laughs> Uh, that I, I really am excited to preach this morning, uh, and I usually am, um, but this morning in particular, I knew it would be a challenging morning for me emotionally, because I just tend to be an emotional guy. Uh, my daughter is one year old today, and just we did something symbolic. We dedicated our lives to her and you to us, and that's beautiful. My mother's here. Uh, <laughs> a lot of reasons to be emotional. I have other family here too, but they're not as important. Uh, it's okay to be honest. I'm just kidding. Kind of kidding. Um, anyway, a lot of reason to be emotional, uh, but this isn't about me. It's not about Nora. It's not about anyone else in here. We want to see God worshiped, and I know that he's good to me, and I hope that you discover today, maybe for the first time, he's also good to you. And to do that, we've been going through some books of wisdom, specifically Proverbs is where we started, and we're going to be in Proverbs this morning. Uh, And so as a reminder and introduction to this book for anyone who hasn't been with us, Proverbs contains a a goldmine of biblical theology. It's rich with goodness, Uh, and and it's not just information, but it's very practical steps for living a righteous life. And It's summarized well in the first chapter. Proverbs 1, 2, and 3 says, it's kind of just stated its purpose, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. And it goes on. But here's the the crux of it all. That we would have truth. We would have God's truth. And that we'd have the wisdom to apply that truth in life. That we would live well. And, and Proverbs addresses many ethical issues and calls us not just to know about them, but to question how we think, to question how we live, to question how we manage our daily lives in light of God's truth. So it's a, it's a rich book for those reasons. And it's difficult sometimes to walk through it because it's not like a narrative. You don't just read through it and hear a story. It's not even like Paul's letters to the church where it's just these like systems of theology just laid out. It's more just these phrases. And it's truth, it's absolute truth, it's authoritative truth, but it, it's also generally true. And in, the, in a way they like to say, if you do this, then this will happen in general, like a proverb usually does. Uh, but since it's God's word, it certainly cares, carries a heavier weight. And, and more specifically, Proverbs calls us to live as the creator designed for us to live. So when you do this, when you live as the creator designed for us to live, you, you find blessings And that's what the theme throughout Proverbs is. It's this way in which wisdom literature finds itself right in the middle of redemptive history. God's story of redeeming his people needs wisdom literature. 
And that's why we're taking time to go through it. He's restoring us by the power of his word. And wisdom literature shows us what that looks like. Here's what a restored life looks like. So this, this reoccurring emphasis in Proverbs to the wise as the righteous ones, specifically in Proverbs, those who fear the Lord, we see this general, general truth. Those who are wise live longer. That's chapter 9, verse 11. They prosper in security. That's chapter 2, 20 through 21. They experience blessings and peace. That's chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And the goodness and health in chapter 12, verse 21. And while, the, while that's true for the wise, the unwise suffer Shame, And that's throughout the book, but a good example of that is in chapter 3, verse 35. And then eventually, death and destruction comes to those who are unwise in chapter 10, verse 21. So this is about earth. This is about life here. Wisdom literature is about how you're living right now. Certainly points to a greater future and eternity, but how you're living right now. If you're wise, you reap these benefits. If you're unwise, you reap destruction and death. Now, before we get it mixed up with some sort of heretical prosperity type gospel that can be very misleading as if we get Jesus so that we get all these good things because that's not the gospel. The truth is, sometimes even the righteous ones suffer. In fact, the only righteous one suffered the most. And we'll, we'll see that also in wisdom literature when we go through the book of Job. It's also true that sometimes the wicked seem to be blessed. They have big houses and nice cars and they're living life for themselves. themselves. But that must mean then that it's not all about these physical things. There has to be something beyond this. And we've been taking time to look at different themes throughout Proverbs to, to lay out here's how it should look in your life, but always coming back to Jesus. So as we look through these different Proverbs this morning, I want to encourage you, you have to keep Jesus in the front of your minds. You don't put him on the back burner and try to figure out how to get your life together and then go back to him when it's hard. Put Jesus in the front of it, and then see as you follow Jesus, you gain wisdom, because Jesus is wisdom. That's how you read any wisdom literature. And so like I said, we've been looking at different categories or themes. Today we're going to look at womanhood. Let it sink in. I know it's the week after Mother's Day, but we're weird. We've always been weird. Why not? Uh, I'm actually a little bit intimidated to talk about womanhood, because if you've noticed, I'm not a woman, um, but also the culture is very sensitive about women in a lot of ways. Um, And I think that the book of Proverbs and the Bible in general addresses women in a cultural context that you just don't address women. So it's peculiar at the least, but profound in the most meaningful ways. And, and there's a wonderful way in which these Proverbs that we're going to walk through this morning confront the brokenness of our world and our church and, and patriarchy, a patriarchal society that makes it all about men all the time. It's very important that we take time to consider what does the Bible have to say about womanhood? And we're not going to be able to flesh out a beautiful theology of womanhood this morning because we're only looking at Proverbs, but certainly we should consider it more often. And so if you didn't know, our society in, in America is patriarchal. It's not as extreme as others and maybe in the past, but certainly it's broken in those ways. And to give you some examples, the brokenness manifests itself in objectification of women, the over-sexualization of women, misogyny and sexism in general. It's the, it comes in form of, of shaming in a purity culture. 
It comes in envy and gossip and slander and backstabbing between sisters. It's the, the proactive hiding of abuse and sexual scandal in order to maintain the, repu- the reputation of sinful men. And, and those things I've just described, that's what it looks like in the church. Our society at large is developed based on the desires and the control of men. And as and it's men have made the decisions about what type of norms to prescribe to the culture because men in our history have been in control. Now, we're not going to focus on feminism this morning. I'm not for that. Feminism says man and woman are the same in ways that aren't true. Feminism says they're same. Bible says they're equal in value and in righteousness and goodness because of Christ and God's design. Men and women both bear the image of God. And so the value is the same, but the roles are very distinct. Like physically, obviously we're different. And society has taken it upon itself to make some changes so that that's no longer true. But physiologically, we're not the same. And emotionally, we're not the same. Psychologically, we're not the same. And it's very important that we see we're not the same with purpose. And hopefully we'll get into that in some ways this morning that will provide some clarity and some comfort in ways that that might feel tense. But let me say that not only has men prescribed values, I think women have put expectations on one another that are unrealistic and and shaming. Uh, Plus, there are relational struggles and insecurities with being a daughter or a sister or a wife or a mother that I just don't understand. And, And then there's pushback from every side on all these different things. So I have no idea what it's like to be a woman but just from observation, I can see that it's exhausting to be a woman. And so it's with as much sympathy as I can muster to present to you, I can almost feel it, but I will never really understand. I will never understand the, the pain of a mother's heart longing for the salvation of her child, even though I'm a father longing for the same. I'll never understand what it takes on a, a woman physically to develop and birth a child. But I know that that has purpose in God's design. In fact, only women know what it's like to suffer that sort of way to bring bring forth something wonderful and new and beautiful. Men will never experience that. And because of our distinctions, women are absolutely necessary. It's not a matter of let's figure out where to put them or where they're allowed to do certain things. It's please, we need help. We're in this together. So too often... Church talk around women be, treats them more like aliens than sisters. And, and I want to see that we don't fall into that, that ditch. Rather, let's seek to work through the complexities without deflecting to some jokes about, you know, the old ball and chain or whatever. We have historically dismissed women as secondary members as if Christianity is for the men. And then, oh, yeah, we got women. We got to figure out something to do with them. So that's all my, that's all my soapbox part of the sermon So I don't want to rant any longer. Let's get into Scripture. We're going to look at Proverbs. Several selected passages will be on the screen. uh, And then we'll finish with one chunk of Scripture. Uh, I I want to remind you, even though I've already said it, focus on the Gospel. Remember Jesus as we walk through these. Ladies, this is a sermon for you. I don't know how often that's happened. I'm preaching to the women this morning, but also every man in the room certainly can benefit from everything I'm going to say. It's the Word of God. It's good for us in every way, and I think that you'll find it's applicable to you as well. So the book of Proverbs, 
We're going to do some categories first. Women relating to others. So in relationships, chapter 11, verse 16 says, A gracious woman gets honor. Verse 22 of that same chapter, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. So we see very clearly, showing grace is honorable, discretion or consideration There's an internal beauty that has great value. In fact, if you're beautiful on the outside, but you have an ugly heart, it's a waste of beauty. That's the point here. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. So just some selected verses to give you this idea of relating to others. In relationship, wise women show grace and discernment. They comfort, encourage, and build others up. Conversely, folly waits for a woman who is brash or careless or self-serving with her words and her actions. Foolish women tear things down. Wise women build things up. So now consider yourself in light of these, these select verses. Do your words refresh people? Or do they stress people? Does your presence in a space encourage and uplift? Or does it tear people down? Are you gracious or are you harshly critical? So if your answers are in the negative, please follow that up with, do you fear the Lord? I hope this morning, if you don't already feel it, to paint a picture that you're not good enough. I want that to be very clear. You're a sinner. We're sinners. We don't have what it takes. That's necessary. It's a necessary part of the gospel. But if we end there, then everyone's ashamed and is leaving here trying harder and then being more shamed when you fail. So we're not going to end there, thank God. There's hope. So please don't leave early. There's hope. But it's necessary you see this. So in marriage, just so you know, the Bible talks about marriage. This is a side note. The Bible talks... I'm I'm really enjoying teaching this morning. I don't know if you guys... As a side note, the Bible talks about marriage. A wife, the Hebrew word and the Greek word for wife is the same word as woman. So... When the Bible talks about marriage, it's, it's definitely talking about man and woman getting married, marriage. But also, it's applicable outside of that. There's symbolism in marriage. points to something greater. In fact, marriage won't be with us in eternity. We have a, a marriage feast of Christ, the groom, and his church, the bride. So we are the wife. We're the bride of Christ. So when we read anything in, in Scripture about marriage, think of it in those terms, symbolism, but also literally. And then also for, for women in here who aren't married or maybe never will be married, certainly these passages apply to you because it also means woman. It's going to be talking about a husband, but it also means woman. So in, in that sense, think of Genesis chapter 2 when God gives Eve the first bride to her husband, Adam. He says, here is your helper who is fit for you because there was nothing else. And I think helper can be a term that we, we make sound like it's something to be ashamed of or or despised, uh, but it's not derogatory. So a helper is a good thing. In fact, Scripture often talks about God as helper. Remember, women are the image of God. That means your existence tells the world something about God. So if God is a helper to Israel in the Old Testament, all throughout it, same word used to describe Eve, then it seems like that would be a good thing. In fact, who needs help? The weak ones, right? The weak people need help. So who's really the needy one here? Just saying. All right, that was a side note. Back to this. In marriage, this applies to all women as helpers in God's original design. Chapter 12, verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. 
It's a word you don't use a lot. Rottenness, decay in his bones. Chapter 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So if you serve, love, and honor your husband, and it encourages him, it lifts him up. And he's able then to live in the role God has designed him to live in. And if you shame him, it's like rottenness in his bones. It's osteoporosis. It's, it's tearing down the structural integrity of his body. You're wearing him out. To give you a little picture, Amelia matters most to me, more than any person in the world. Her thoughts and opinion, the faces she makes at me, mean something. Husbands, you know what I'm talking about. She can very easily build me up to where I feel like I can conquer the world. And at the same time, she can crush me. Doesn't take a lot. That's what we're talking about here. As a helper, you either encourage or you rot the bones of your husband. Let's continue verse, or chapter 19, verse 14. No one inherits a good wife. So house and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. She's a gift from God. Just before that in verse 13, a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Drip, drip, drip. Get where it's going. Please, Lord, stop it. That's the prayer of husbands with an arguing wife. Chapter 21, verse 9, it's better to live in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Likewise, verse 19 of that same, that same chapter, it is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fearful or fretful woman. So wives, your nagging can be suffocating. Please stop nagging. That's what the Bible's saying. It's better for your husband to be alone in the desert or to have nothing, to escape and get to the top of the house and hide in the corner. It's better than to live in the house with a nagging quarrelsome, fretful woman. So then ask yourselves about being a wife or a woman. Are you a blessing to people? Are you a blessing to your husband? Are you a blessing to the church? You can, you, you can be used by God in, in glorious ways to strengthen a household, to strengthen a church, but you also can kill it. And in motherhood, again, this applies not just to moms, but to womanhood in God's design. So Gloria for, uh, Furman, Gloria Furman wrote a book called Missional Motherhood to talk about mothering being a verb that's applicable to all women. She says in God's design, it's explained like this, mothering or nurturing is not just a calling for women to, who have biological or adopted children. Mothering is a calling for all women. The motherhood to which every Christian woman is called is making disciples of all nations in the sense that there is no woman who is child free. We need sisters, but we also need mothers in the church. Nurturing is a vital part of a healthy church, and God has designed women to mother. So in light of that, chapter 6, verse 20, this is to children. We read it uh, earlier in the service, but this segment of it, forsake not your mother's teaching. Chapter 10, verse 1, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Chapter 15, verse 20, a foolish man despises his mother. Chapter 29, verse 15, a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So the idea from these verses, you are to instruct, lead, 
and be responsible for your children, more than just physically providing for them, feeding them, or whatever. You provide emotional and, and spiritual vitality by the way you nurture. So do you instruct, lead, and carry responsibility for your children and for younger believers in the faith? Are you mothering well? And then, of course, there's Proverbs chapter 31. Perhaps you've heard of it. Proverbs 31, woman, has become a saying that people use. I don't know, I know a lot of people use it, but I don't know how many people actually read it. So we're going to read it this morning. Proverbs chapter 31, it's not all of it, it's just chapter, or verse 10 through 31. Uh, Just to give you some framework, uh, some context, this is a poem. It's a poem written about a woman who fears the Lord, a wise woman, a noble woman. I like to call her a woman who shames all other women with her awesomeness. It's a longer name, but I'm not going to keep talking. She is an awesome woman in this passage, so much so that the author is building a poem. It's like he's lacing a necklace, pearl by pearl. It's not a, an argument like Paul gives in the New Testament for what womanhood is. It's, it's a poem about a beautiful woman in every way. So the aim is, to, as stated in verse 30, to praise the woman who fears the Lord. He's praising this woman who fears the Lord. And we know it's a poem because in Hebrew, it's an acrostic. It's using the Hebrew alphabet. It's 22 letters, 22 points he's making, 22 pearls on the necklace. He's, he's talking about the excellencies of this woman by going letter by letter through the, the Aleph Bet in Hebrew. The, the Aleph is the first letter of the word wife. So we see in the first verse, full of excellence is this wife, this woman. Bet is the first letter of the word trust. So we see he goes on to talk about the trust her husband can have in her. So he goes through the alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Delet. You guys know the Hebrew alphabet. Come on. Hey, Vav. I don't actually know it all. That's as far as I can go. Don't tell my professors. All right. He goes to the, the Hebrew alphabet letter by letter, talking about the excellencies of this woman. And it, I encourage you to look this up because it's really fascinating. I guess if you're interested, it's fascinating. But it's a type of poem structure that builds to a point. And verse 23 is kind of the, the middle of it where it talks about her husband. And then it builds back. And so if you look at it from that middle point, it's a chiastic f- formulation if you're into poetry. And it builds on it in a way that it's not just going through the alphabet, but he, he's telling a story about this woman and her, the excellent ways she lives and how she cares for people and herself. And it's, it's really beautiful. You're going to hear it, so I don't know why I'm still talking about it. Starting in verse 10, we're going to read to the end of it, and then we'll do some application. An excellent wife, who can find... She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of merchant of the merchant. She brings food, her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household 
for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes the linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her work be praised or praise her in the gates. This woman, right? She is trustworthy and good for her, her husband and her children. She's good for the soul of her family. She's involved in business dealings outside of the home that she she gets up on her own terms and her own strength while providing and caring for all the needs of her home. She serves those who are poor and needy outside of her home and on, that are on the margins of people. She's skilled and equipped to bless others with her hands and also with her words. And it looks like in verse 17, she also finds time to work out. Courageously, she embodies great wisdom. The wisdom we see all throughout the book of Proverbs. This is the final chapter this woman embodying all of it for her family, for her husband, for herself. And she sees the fruit of it. She's strong, intelligent, skillful, generous, kind, caring, trustworthy, resourceful, efficient, and spiritually minded. She benefits her husband. She benefits her children. Her aim in all of this is honoring the Lord with her whole life. She does all of this in fear of God and humbly, humbly submitting to Him. And this makes her worthy of praise, according to verse 30. So a woman of God in our culture, for some reason, is characterized more like a quiet, delicate, meek, and mild lady who sits in the corner of the room, minding her business, like this antebellum archetype of a proper woman. When in contrast with Scripture... Not just the Proverbs 31 woman, but really most, if not all, the women in Scripture, we see a boldness. She, that she doesn't fear men more than she fears God. And in the case of this chapter, any person, not just a woman, should want to possess the character and skills that this woman's capable of, of having. But us normal human beings more likely cringe at the aspect of this woman being set before us as someone to emulate. Like, who can find her is right. Like, she's impossible. That cannot possibly exist. She's somehow a, a night person and a morning person. Verse 15 and verse 18. In fact, she may not even sleep, according to verse 27. She doesn't stop working. It's unbelievable. This person cannot be. So to those of you who are already making your to-do list, Please stop. You cannot be this woman. And I don't, I don't know who's put this before you in your life as a young lady and said, this is who you need to try to be like. You can't. So let me 
Let me help you lift the weight off your shoulders. You cannot be this woman. And even if you could pull it off, it's not enough. For everyone's fallen short. Everyone fails. No one is good enough. Good works will never be enough, no matter how good they are. I think that there's a lot to consider in this chapter, but in light of the rest of the Bible, we can say with certainty that being a godly woman has much more to do with what Jesus has done and a lot less to do with what you're able to do. Rather than being impressed or intimidated by this woman, I encourage you, be in awe of her God. Because it's clear, everything that she possesses and is able to do is because she's dependent on a God who's bigger than her. She's committed to him. So maybe we can use this passage, and certainly we should. It's in the Bible. We can use it for something. So perhaps it's a a type of metric that we could measure goodness in our life and, and see the fruit in our lives as we're dependent on God. So if we see it like that, then here are some questions. Are you honoring your husband and are you for his good? Are you blessing your family with clothes and food without settling for the cheap stuff. Like it talks about her buying the, the best material. She gets, she gets foreign foods. Like she has them shipped in. That's what she, it said. So she's not just settling for whatever's cheapest. She's going and doing what she has to do to provide the best for her family. So are you doing that? Are you speaking the truth with wisdom and kindness to others? Are you dressing well, whatever that means? Are you reaching out to the poor and to the marginalized? Are you, are you free from the fear of troubles? It says she laughs at what's to come. Are you free from anxiety and fear about what may come? Or it says she's not worried about the snow that's coming because her family has everything she needs to be protected from it. Are you doing all of this while enjoying the fruits of your labor? It's not like she's just working really hard anxiously so she can provide and never having a moment of rest or enjoyment. She's enjoying the fruits of her labor. So there's a lot to consider when you look at that, but if you're saying no to those questions, I'm with you. I don't think we could say yes to all of them. In fact, commentaries and scholars don't believe this woman, she didn't, either didn't exist or it was a woman throughout her life. And these are pictures of her throughout her life all compiled into one poem, which makes much more sense, or even just description of a woman based on many women and what they're able to accomplish, all the good that we see. I don't think it's right or, or necessary for any one woman to seek to possess all that's here. What's most pressing about all of this is that you seek to fear the Lord, that all of this, all wisdom begins with the posturing of your heart before God in humble submission. If you set out to be a godly woman in your own strength, it will crush you. Either you'll have really good days and feel like you're the queen of the universe, Captain Marvel flying around, nothing can stop you, or you'll have really bad days and you'll want to quit and get in the car and just drive and keep driving and keep going, get to an airport, buy a ticket to an island nobody knows about, change your name, sip mimosas for the rest of your life. I know you've had that thought. Amelia's described that in detail to me before. (laughs) You can't do this. So get it. You're either going to be good at it and be self-righteous. Those people go to hell. Or you're going to be really bad at it and crushed in shame, never depending on Jesus, and still go to hell. 
So stop trying to take all the things in your life, the to-do list and all the righteous rules to follow and force it to happen because you're going to kill yourself. Here's the solution. Here's the hope that I hope you've been waiting for. It's, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. As a, as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter, as a sister, as a friend, as a woman, the Word of God can't be a guide or a how-to manual for life. You don't need more tips. You don't need more blogs to read. You don't need to grit your teeth and try harder. You need to surrender to Jesus. And I wanted you to feel the weight of it because I want you to feel the weight lifted. See the expectations, the shame, the pride that comes with being a woman. And then see them nailed to the cross. If you feast on the bread of life, if you drink deep from the well that won't run dry, the living water, you'll find yourself in the middle of redemption being bought back from darkness. You'll find freedom there, seeing clearly God's purpose in creating you to be a woman here in this time period, in this city, as a part of this church for this gospel purpose. God has reasons for all of it. Jesus suffered on your behalf. He became sin so that you wouldn't have to suffer in sin. He died so that you wouldn't have to be killed by your sin. And he rose victoriously that you would find freedom over sin and death in him, not in your ability, not in your skill. See that if you allow this, see that Jesus is the true and better Proverbs 31 woman. And he alone has everything that you can't be. He's trustworthy like this woman. He's more trustworthy. He is everything you need for your family. He's everything you need to love your husband well as a helper in God's design. He's everything you need to make sure people are fed in your life spiritually, emotionally, physically. He's got it all. He frees you from fear when you're afraid of the future. He, he lifts the anxieties and says, don't worry about tomorrow. I've got it. This is Jesus for you. When you get distressed, turn to Jesus. And when you get dressed in the morning, Clothe yourself in the righteousness of Christ. I'm not going to give you a list of what's modest and what's not and shame you for not being modest enough. Clothe yourself in Christ. Be confident that he's got you. Find freedom in Jesus, not in the approval of men or women or yourself. He's your wisdom. He's your strength. He's your kindness. He's your salvation, your security, your rescue. He's your hope for the future. Jesus alone is sufficient. You can trust him. And this goes beyond you. It's not just about you and your family or your children or your life, but there's purpose for you here and now in this church. There's purpose for you in your future, wherever you might go, wherever God might send you. As a woman, the creator of the universe has you and designed you with purpose. So hear the charge. Fear the Lord and work hard. Worship God in all of that work and then rest knowing that Jesus has it. You can trust him. The results are in his hands. Continuing to, to bless people, continuing to count your blessings and then return those blessings to the Lord. Celebrate the grace of God in your life. Live in freedom because it's yours to have in Jesus. And it seems that for the rest of us, the non-women, men and children, we should respond by praising the woman who fears the Lord. Verse 28 and 29 says, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. 
So what I'm saying is, when you see it, write a poem about it. Celebrate these women. When I consider the relationships between men and women that are certainly broken in our world, in our culture, in our church, I'm sure the brokenness that happened in the Garden of Eden when, the, when sin entered the world hasn't been made whole yet. But I'm also confident Jesus is about that work and he's using his church to bring it about. We need reconciliation vertically between us and God. And then we need to be a people about the work of reconciliation. Every Christian, a minister of reconciliation, horizontally bringing people to our Father. And the brokenness between men and women is certainly a part of that. So I'm not looking to condone or pander to feminism this morning. I, I, I don't want to even, even lean towards egalitarianism, which is a type of doctrine that says men and women are the same in the church. I don't believe that's true in Scripture. I, I can't see Scripture and read it honestly and say that's the case. But I think it's beautiful when we rightly understand what it means to complement one another. So I want to be clear, the church needs women, not just for kids or for women. The church needs women for us. With strong complementary conviction, I say we need women to lead sisters and mothers to nurture, to edify with us, for us. By God's design, women are what men can never be. So men, let's celebrate it. And it and remember I said the crux of all this is verse 23. So I'm going to go back and read that. It may not be on the screen, but a husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. A husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders in the land. In this culture, the wife was doing everything as we saw in this passage, but apparently the husband's doing something too. And she lives with him in such a way that he is lifted and known. And so as the bride of Christ, may it be that we live stronger, wiser, healthier with women and men working together to encourage and lead and speak to the life and the vitality of this church so that Christ may be known. Will we make him known in the city by living excellently, dependent on him, working in us and through us for his kingdom, for his glory? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for the women here and the ways I've been so encouraged and, and just seeing them step into leading roles and, and thus work through the nuance of, of it all. Uh, Lord, I know that your word's clear in so many ways, what a man is to be as the head and authority and what women are and submission as helpers. But I pray that we would do the serious work of, of seeing what that means. What does it mean to have authority but not superiority? What does it mean to have submission without insub being insubordinate or being in, in inferior? God, help us to see that it's by your design we are who we are, that you've put us together with purpose, that we would be a people who live on this mission for your glory, that more and more people would know Jesus and enjoy Jesus and fr find freedom in Jesus. And all this we pray in his name. Amen.